You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your host, Mark Holfe, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta. I am excited to be back behind the mic here, releasing a much, much needed podcast, at least a new episode, uh, as it's been over three months since I did the last one. I've had so much going on, and I think I say this every podcast that I do. Life swallows up everything and time has to be partitioned out such that you can meet whatever is, well, the most pressing or whichever fire is blazing the highest. And that was pretty much my life over the last three months. Um, I think I I mentioned in the past that my son, Adam, had uh, been required to come home from um, his mission. He was in the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, because he tore his ACL. And so... He has been home and we've been wrestling, trying to get everything done. He's had his surgery. He's fully recovered. And just recently, just last week, we received his travel instructions for him to head back. And he's actually, it looks like he's going to be going to Curaçao, um, one of the ABC islands initially for the first month. And then we'll see where he ends up. If it's in Suriname, where he was originally supposed to go, Dutch speaking, um, we're hoping that will happen pretty quickly. But initially, he'll be going to Curaçao, so that lovely island to start off his mission. So he leaves October the 29th. um, And our whole family here, the Holthy clan is ecstatic. So that has uh, absorbed a considerable amount of my time with him home and his recovery and all that kind of stuff, uh, rehabilitation. And um, but things are good. Life is good. The Canadian Immigration Institute, which is another little venture I've been uh, pursuing, has been humming along a little bit. And if you're curious about some of the other things that I'm doing, um, the Express Entry Law private Facebook group is almost at 120,000 people. It is massive. It is so huge. And uh, obviously, I'm not able to do things as um, one-to-one as I used to when there was only about 5,000 members of that fine little group. But it has uh, that that clan over there has really, really kept me hopping. And every Tuesday at noon, I do a new um, Facebook live video on express entry. It's all express entry. And then I spin it out to the Canadian Immigration Institute. So uh, the YouTube channel. So if you guys are interested in checking out what this crazy Mark Holfe is doing here out in the world of uh, content marketing, um, yeah, you can go check it out. Um, all right. Today, today. I have decided to do a little shift with the Canadian Immigration Podcast, and um, I am going to focus the next few episodes strictly on business immigration. And in light of the recent negotiations that concluded uh, between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, uh, I thought it would be very, very timely to address this whole new lovely agreement that our three countries have. 
And when you, uh, I think for most of us, uh, Canadian immigration lawyers and our clients, there was a lot of uneasiness. What is going to happen? What is Trump going to do? You know, uh, what is he going to do to our dear country? And what kind of deal are we going to end up after uh, the U.S. exercises their full weight um, within the negotiations? And there was all kinds of posturing. And so I know I was nervous. Uh, And then we get this lovely statement that was released September the 30th, and I'll read it to you guys. Today, Canada and the United States reached an agreement alongside Mexico on a new modernized trade agreement for the 21st century. The United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, USMCA. This USMCA will give our workers, farmers, ranchers, and businesses a high standard trade agreement that will result in freer markets fair trade, and robust economic growth in our region. It will strengthen the middle class and create good, well-paying jobs and new opportunities for the nearly half billion people who call North America home. We look forward to further deepening our close economic ties when this new agreement enters into force. So, which we believe is going to be sometime in the beginning of 2020. And so, um, when this release happened guess what we did? We went immediately to the uh, the draft agreement to see how immigration was affected. And I can pretty much confirm, as, uh, as Billy will, um, who's my guest here coming up in just a few minutes, um, no change. So it is status quo and we're pretty excited about that. I also thought I would, you know, it's so interesting the posturing that goes on, but I thought I would also just read um, this statement from uh, our our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And he says here, the agreement in principle we we reached today is good for Canada, good for Canadian businesses, and most importantly, good for Canadian workers and their families. When this improved agreement is implemented, North American trade will be preserved and modernized for the 21st century, just as we set out to do. Well, I, I agree with every single statement there, except the last one. I think one of the things that we were all hoping is that the list of NAFTA professionals would be expanded, but that was not the case, but we will take the status quo. Now, with that being said, many people don't fully appreciate what NAFTA or the USMCA can truly do for us. So I invited um, my right hand uh, uh, my right hand support here, Billy Young, in my office to join me and... Uh, because we deal so much with cross-border business immigration, we thought, you know what, this is an ideal time to just re-emphasize why the USMCA is so good. Why it is something that every single US company or Mexican company that is looking to do business in Canada needs to absolutely consider first. And any Canadian company who's looking at contracting or hiring directly or recruiting a professional from one of the other member countries, um, why NAFTA slash the USMCA is an absolute must to consider first. All right. So without further ado, let's get to the interview and a discussion I had with Billy Young. Hello, everyone. I am back here with my fearless compadre, Billy Young. How are you, Billy? Good, thanks. Billy has gracious, graciously agreed to join me mm-hmm. on this um, somewhat of a new topic, I guess. I've, I've kind of had a little bit of a mixed bag when it comes to this podcast. 
uh, covering all kinds of different um, immigration topics. But in the next little while, we're going to be focusing hardcore on business immigration. And why? Well, there have been some negotiations going on, haven't they, Billy? Yes. And uh, thanks to our um, fine neighbors to the south, we can no longer call some of our work permits NAFTA work permits. So thanks to uh, President Trump, who I understand is taking a little bit of credit for the actual name, uh, we now have a new trade agreement with Canada, U.S., and Mexico. And just, uh, you know, to, to try not to create too much of a surprise and suspense for everyone, this name is, is very original. What, what is it, Billy? It is called USMCA. Yes, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily um, saying that Canada is the red-headed stepchild in this arrangement, but... I totally would. <laughs> we are definitely um, uh, an add-on at the end. And from an immigration perspective, I think a lot of us were holding our breath with all of the posturing and everything that was going on. I think some of us, including me, had some serious concerns that some of the most favorable immigration provisions from a temporary work standpoint were going to be disrupted in some form, either caps being put in place or some of the categories being changed. Um, and so there was a little bit of uncertainty and anxiety and maybe even more so on the part of our clients who for years and years have relied so heavily, both coming into Canada and going down to the U.S. and Mexico. But, Billy, if we could summarize all of the changes that were um, instituted from an immigration perspective, um, how would you describe them? The changes that have happened from NAFTA to now? Yeah. Um, I would say there pretty much are zero changes. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. And Billy's like, oh, what are you asking me, Mark? Is this a trick <laughs> like, question? Uh-oh. No, this is 100% right. Status quo. So absolutely no changes. And from our perspective, the only thing that we have to make um, in terms of adjustments to how we prepare our work permit packages for our clients is remembering to call it the USMCA, which Billy, you said that reminds you of a song. What song? Yes. Of course, you could break out into YMCA at any (laughs) point because that's how I seem to remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever works. So the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Now you're always going to think YMCA. I am, actually. Mm -hmm. It's never going to escape my mind. (laughs) So we thought today, because um, this isn't a topic that we've really covered on the podcast before, and we know that a lot of our listeners, um, including other practitioners across the country, um, don't do a lot of this, these types of work permits. Usually we're defaulted into the lovely LMIA world, uh, the labor market impact assessment world. We thought we would just cover some of our, I guess, in a way, our top five reasons why we personally love the new USMCA and its predecessor NAFTA so much and why we think you guys will as well if you are in some degree unfamiliar with all of the awesome work permit options that are available. So what do you think, Billy? Should we jump into this? Sounds good. Okay. So um, Billy is going to, uh, as we go through our top five list here, she's going to go over um, a brief overview of the specific eligibility requirements. And then just to make it a little bit more applicable to our listeners, um, I will share some practical examples. So ways in which we've used it in the past for our clients. And uh, I know when I started my practice, those were the things I loved the most when I was attending different immigration conferences and things like that. You know, there's a lot of 
gap sometimes between what the law says and what the policy says in terms of who can use it and how other practitioners have actually used the different work permit categories. So, um, yeah, so why don't we jump in and do that? Okay, top five list of reasons why everyone will love the USMCA just as much as they did the old NAFTA. All right, number one, Billy, is what do we got on uh, number one on our list? We are going to discuss business visitors and how you can utilize this category through the new USMCA. Exactly. And so before Billy jumps into the, the main eligibility requirements, um, there's actually a subsection uh, of business visitor that we're also going to touch on called the after sales service. But generally speaking, Billy, what are the main requirements? Can anyone just come into Canada and just say, I'm a business visitor and do whatever they want? Specifically, when you're speaking to, um, like you say, old BAFTA or the USMCA, you really have to make sure you are either a US citizen or a citizen of Mexico to qualify to uh, identify under this category to enter um, as a business visitor. And then you would have your other general eligibility requirements, which would be one, the purpose of your entry into Canada. So you need to make sure the link to your activity is one that's an accepted activity as listed in one of the appendixes that I'm assuming we will get into a little bit later. Yeah. And well, and you, you know, one thing we're not going to do is get into the real, real nuts and bolts <laughs> of this. And so I will put a link in the show notes to the actual appendix 1603.8.1, which lists the activities that, uh, um, that are traditionally recognized as being good ones for the purposes of a NAFTA business visitor entry. Okay. And then the second one is your business activity is international in scope. So this means the activity must have a cross border element to it. So if you are traveling into Canada on behalf of a company in the U S or in Mexico, the international scope component will be relatively easy to meet. Um, however, the purpose of the entry has no connection with a business outside of Canada. It is much more likely that you will have to consider obtaining a work permit rather than just a general business visitor entry. Um, as well, one of the main criteria that lots of people tend to focus on is that you're not seeking to enter um, the Canadian labor market. So this one is kind of hard to prove in some cases. However, you can demonstrate that your primary source of remuneration, principal place of business, and accrual of profits are all outside of Canada, uh, then you will be probably just fine to be entering as a business visitor. You bet. And Billy highlighted, you know, some of these key components that you must be able to demonstrate in some form or fashion. Now, sometimes you just arrive at the border and, <laughs> you know, or at the airport and you say, I'm just coming in for meetings. And that sometimes will be a you know, the person, the officer will then ask, uh, okay, well, what kind of meetings or what are you doing? And other times they'll say, when are you going back? And you'll say, oh, I'm only here for, you know, three days and then I'm flying home and no questions will be asked. But we advise our clients that it's always useful to have a little business visitor letter, which specifically addresses each of these things that Billy talked about, you know, it expl um, explains you know, what the purpose of the entry is, how long you're going to be there, um, that your purpose fits within the accepted activities under the USMCA. And I guess I should also point out um, that with the USMCA, it actually isn't going to be 
uh, effective, at least using the new title USMCA, until uh, probably the beginning of 2020. So we can still and should still use NAFTA, mm-hmm. um, but just because the negotiations recently concluded around September the 30th, um, uh, because of that, uh, you know, it takes obviously a little bit of time for everybody to get things finalized and signed off with all three um, of the participating countries. So just I wanted to give that little caveat. But when you're going forward and you're preparing a business visitor entry, it's always good to have a little letter that the individual can keep in their back pocket. And uh, I don't, we don't usually say you need to flash them in front of the officer at the primary inspection line because, uh, Billy, what, what does that usually do anytime you show a piece of paper to the, the first guy? Um, I would say for me from previous experience, um, I don't really want to see anything unless I ask for it at that point. Cause I feel like it's just, you're jumping, jumping ahead of things and they always like to have control. So I think you're trying to kind of overstep a little bit when you start just throwing stuff at them right away. So just kind of be patient and wait for them to request the information from you. You bet. And I think, too, when you're showing a piece of paper at the primary inspection line, often, often these officers don't have a lot of time to deal with anything. They've got a big lineup of people at the airport. And so uh, when you show that, that paper right off the get-go, they'll often then flag you and kick you back to immigration mm-hmm. for <laughs> the secondary examination when it probably isn't required. So we just have it available. That's what we advise our clients. And, uh, and then we specifically address you know, that the primary source of remuneration is outside Canada and that... Um, you know, the profits are outside of Canada and that they're not entering the labor market. And um, that usually is good. Now, one thing we advise our clients and they always ask us, okay, well, what constitutes a business visitor entry and what doesn't? And, um, and one of the, you know, one of the guidelines we use is that anything that is pre-contractual, so leading up to the actual signing of a contract for the provision of, of, uh, of goods or, or services, whatever it might be, that that tends to be a pretty safe zone when it comes to business visitor. And if it's, you know, leading up to a contract, those negotiations are often something that would be contemplated as a business visitor entry. But once the contract is signed, then that's a little bit of a different story. And then it can get a little bit, well, a little bit grayer, I guess is what, what we'd say. And uh, there is no fine line. So we're not going to try to give you this list of things that are accepted and are unaccepted. Um, that's just, uh, you know, the closer it looks to the person entering the labor market or the more, you know, frequent the person is traveling, um, frequently the person is traveling up to Canada, you're just going to start to get closer to the realm where an officer says, Hey, I think you need a work permit, which at times, uh, is not very fun now in our new world, um, of work permits because, uh, the officer doesn't have the discretion or ability to just issue a work permit right on the spot without a pre, uh, a first step, I guess, um, which we will cover here in one second. Um, that NAFTA-based work permits you have to do before you send your individual to the border, but we're going to keep that one. You have to listen for a little bit and then we'll talk about that. All right. So that's the general business visitor. And, you know, we've got a lot of clients that come up and, and are bidding on RFPs and things like that from the U.S., uh, multinational companies and um, all of that pre-negotiation stage uh, tends to fall pretty safely under the business visitor realm. Now, one of the subcategories within the business visitor category itself is the after-sale service provisions. Now, what what is this, Billy? Well, um, basically, for for after-sale service. Um, 
uh, are you looking at the requirements to enter under after sales service or what are you yeah. looking for? Yeah. So basically here? who who is this? Who is an after sales service person? Gotcha. Well, the general requirements for an after sales service, um, one would be someone who has specialized knowledge. So a person must possess specialized knowledge essential to the seller's contractual obligation. Um, the purpose of their entry would be to install, repair, service, or supervise these functions or train workers to perform these functions. Types of equipment could include uh, machinery or computer software and must be commercial or industrial, cannot be household or personal use. Um, equipment source, so this is pretty important, must have been manufactured and purchased outside Canada. The original sales contract uh, within an after-sales service must be pursuant to the original sales contract or warranty or service agreement connected to the original sale. So again, that original sale has to have been a purchase agreement. The term of service work must be performed within the validity of the agreement. Exactly. And those last two points are probably the, some of the most important for after-sales service. So this is work, folks. This is. You're mm -hmm. coming in to, to perform one of these activities, either install or repair or service some equipment that was purchased outside of Canada. And this individual, when they're coming up to uh, either help with the installation or coming back after to provide warranty support or anything like that, that work has to have been contemplated within the original agreement. And if it is not encompassed within that original agreement, Billy, then what, what happens to that individual? Are they still eligible? No. Simple, simple as that. <laughs> They're not. And, and then usually what direction do we have to go with these guys? Well, uh, maybe there could be another option later on that we might discuss. Otherwise, you might be looking at an LMIA. Yeah. In most cases, these technicians <laughs> who are coming in, installation and servicing, they tend to be uh, then requiring an LMIA, which is an ugly, ugly thing that you desperately want to avoid. So if a company comes to you and says, <clears throat> hey, we want to send this person up for warranty work, there is a separate category. And understand too, as we're talking about all these things, this is just... USMCA or NAFTA. So this doesn't cover off all the other possible options that are available in our uh, immigration um, buffet that we have for business immigration under the International Mobility Program, which is Canada's uh, LMIA exempt work permit option. So we're just restricting our discussion today to the USMCA. But um, when it comes to uh, individuals that are coming in as a technician, often they wouldn't qualify as a professional or some other category and they are performing work. And that's why this after sales service category is so good. But if you have an opportunity and a company comes to you and says, Hey, we've got lots of repeat work. We've got lots of clients in Canada. We need to send our people up there on occasion to provide warranty support. And whether it's equipment or software, even um, both are included. And even the, the, the information, um, sorry, the, the software could be leased even that's included. Um, but the reality is they need to be contemplated in that original um, sales agreement. And if it's not, then it ain't happening. 
All right. Well, and I think you can also um, touch on too, like when they say that it's an original sales contract. So the Canadian company could purchase um, equipment, for example, let's say not software related or, or it could be. As long as they're the original purchaser and the end user they may be leasing to in Canada, that's still applicable for after sales service as long as, uh, like Marcus said, it was originally contemplated and it was originally purchased. So that end user in Canada could still be leasing the equipment from the company that originally purchased it from either the US or Mexico. Perfect. Great insight. Thanks, Billy. All right. Next on our list here is professionals. Mm -hmm. And these are probably, this category is the one I think we love more than any other. It affords the most flexibility and, uh, and allows for us to, to help US companies or Mexican companies sending people into Canada as quickly as possible. So when you have a very, very uh, short turnaround and you don't have a lot of time and you just, yeah, whether an LMIA applies or not, if, if a NAFTA or in this case USMCA professional is, um, is a possibility, we look to that number one right off the bat. So who is a professional? What's required to, to meet the eligibility requirements for this category, Billy? Well, again, with the USMCA specifically, you still have to be aware that it has to be a U.S. citizen or a, a Mexican citizen uh, in order to qualify. Uh, it must be a profession that is identified in, again, an appendix that's listed within the agreement under 1603.D.1, uh, which, again, will be available for you to access. Uh, the qualification to work uh, in that profession. So the individual coming in has to be able to identify that they are a professional. So they have to have a degree, a certificate, a licensing um, under that profession. For example, if you're an engineer, you need to show you have a degree um, that's reflective of that. And in most cases, a license as well to practice. And I'll um, jump in there too, Billy. Yeah. One of the things that we always, always address, <coughs> excuse me, with our clients, and a perfect example is someone who is an accountant, let's say, <laughs> in the U.S. who has all the credentials, fully licensed, and wants to come in to Canada and work as a bookkeeper. So obviously, that's probably not going to work, and it, 100% it won't because it needs to, you need to be coming in to work as a professional in, and provide a professional level service. For sure. Um, another uh, very important point would be that it has to be prearranged employment uh, with a Canadian employer. And again, provision of professional level services are going to be offered as well. So when we talk, Billy, about prearranged employment with a Canadian employer, mm -hmm. um, probably one of the most common situations we see is, um, well, I, I guess one of the most straightforward concepts of prearranged employment is a job offer from a Canadian company for a professional to actually come up and work in Canada. And, uh, and when we look at some of the other permutations, we also do a lot of work for U.S. companies who parachute people into Canada. And so what does that look like when you have a U.S. company who <laughs> needs to send one of their workers in not to take up a full-time job with a Canadian company, but just to provide engineering or architectural um, or even consulting services for a Canadian company, um, but that individual isn't actually taking up a full-time job. Is that possible into this? Yeah, it's absolutely possible. You still are looking at some type of a contractual obligation, whether it be an, um, you know, an employee-employer relationship when it becomes, you know, as a self-employed consultant, for example, or if it's arranged between the Canadian and, and U.S. or Mexican 
company as well. Uh, as long as that service has been agreed to previously and the individual coming in is a professional that they're looking to fill uh, in that role, they can definitely come up, let's say, as a parachute or temporarily until their role or the, let's say, the project, for example, has been completed and their services are no longer required with the expectation that they will return home and it is not necessarily a permanent full-time position that they're being offered. Perfect. Now, this is probably a perfect segue into the discussion of some not so recent changes. I think mm-hmm. it was back in 2015 they instituted this, mm-hmm. but no longer uh, can a company just provide a letter to their employee or um, an invitation letter of some form from the company in Canada that they're, they have uh, signed up a contract to provide professional services to. No longer will just a job offer simple letter be enough. Now, this concept of a job offer requires something more. Yes. So they like to see that it is, uh, I guess, by definition or terminology wise, that it's an offer of employment that's specifically offered by the Canadian company to the individual that's coming up. Um, The reason why they like this is because the government itself, so IRCC, has developed what they call their employer portal that the company must register with to then identify um, employees that they're wanting to bring up under this professional category or otherwise um, to fill that position. And this all has to be done prior to travel. So before they show up at the port of entry, it all has to be registered within this employer portal um, and completed prior to that individual traveling. Um, other, There are other ways to get around, I guess, having the Canadian company be identified, but ideally that's, if possible, that's the route that the employers want to look at. You bet. And we're, we're talking about the, the general rules here. <laughs> so we won't dive into some other ways that we can try to make it work so that the Canadian company doesn't have to officially <laughs> step into that role. But we'll, we'll just leave those for, uh, well, if, if you are stuck in this situation and you're a U.S. company, give us a call. Yeah. <laughs> and so one, one of the key things here that Billy's outlined is that there are really three different scenarios that will work for an after professional. And this is why it's so good. So one, the first one I addressed, which is actually hiring the person to come work for you as a Canadian company and filling a position. The next is you're hiring on a contract basis, that same individual. Maybe they're a management consultant who's coming in to provide services to you. They're not an employee. It's purely a contract basis. And then the third is you've contracted a U.S. company to provide something to you and they can send their employees based on that contract. So as long as they meet the definition of a professional, um, under the uh, identified list that we talked about under appendix 1603.d.1, then you're pretty good to go. And, you know, these work permits are, are th- there's no cap, which is really good. So mm-hmm. you can keep sending these individuals, parachuting them into Canada or continuing to extend. Obviously, if the person's extended for 20 years, you might want to consider thinking <laughs> about a permanent resident option, but it's not a specific requirement and there are no caps. So that's really awesome. Okay. Next one on our list, which is if the professional doesn't work and so you're trying to get someone into Canada and, uh, and they're not a professional, uh, then the next thing that we look at is the intra-company transfer provisions. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about those ones, Billy. 
Okay, um, so the ICT provisions, again, we're dealing with U.S. and Mexican citizens only. So this also excludes, it's important, I think, to identify not permanent residents. So you can't be a permanent resident. You have to be a citizen of either U.S. or Mexico to qualify. Um, as well, within this ICT category, employment has to be either in an executive or managerial capacity or one that's involving specialized knowledge. Uh, you need to be transferring from a related company. So, for example, a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, or a branch. And employment for at least one full year in the previous three-year period with that company you're transferring from. Um, those are just your general minimum requirements um, under that category. And we could spend, <coughs> we could spend uh, an entire podcast, which... We will actually talking about the ICT pro category in, in a little bit more detail. But um, obviously, if you have someone working in a senior managerial role or executive role, then it's pretty straightforward. They're in that position. What becomes a little bit more dicey is when you're trying to classify one of your employees as specialized knowledge. And really, that definition, although it is you know, fairly straightforward, an advanced level of knowledge, you know, with respect to some proprietary component of the company, um, in practice, and when you're trying to define it and describe it to an officer, if it's a port of entry application, at times it's not as easy. And the reality is different officers at different ports of entry have different views of what specialized knowledge is. And so you have to be careful and cautious and, and pick your battles and try to determine which ports of entry are maybe more facilitative and have a more um, broader uh, view of what specialized knowledge is versus others that tend to be a little bit more restrictive. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, some ports consider only rocket scientists to be uh, those holding specialized knowledge, but there are times when it's a hard case to meet. And so if you have an individual, one of the best parts of the intercompany transfer provisions is that you don't necessarily have to have a degree. You know, you, um, and in many cases with the ICTs, you, uh, your, your executives and professionals have worked their way up through the company and, you know, may not have a post-secondary education. They just, because of their experience and, and knowledge and business acumen, um, they've become the CEO of the company or the, the COO and, and now need to transfer to Canada to a new startup to, um, uh, to, to take in that position. And under NAFTA, well, they wouldn't fit because they're managers, but with the specialized knowledge people, the, the same thing holds true. And there's a, like, a, like we talked about, there's a lot of different um, uh, permutations of specialized knowledge that you have to take into consideration. But for our purposes, just understand it's, it's an advanced level of knowledge with respect to some proprietary component um, of, of the business being transferred. Okay, so an example. So <laughs> we, we obviously, this is probably our number two most popular work permit that we do for our cross-border clients. But, um, you know, it, it could be any company in the U.S. who has a subsidiary in Canada. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of work for architectural and engineering firms. And, uh, you know, and the beauty of the ICT, just like the NAFTA, is you can parachute people in. So if they need to come in for a short term, they can. So they'll come in and uh, the subsidiary in Canada is the employer uh, for the purposes of the transfer. And, uh, and yeah, we do this quite frequently for, for those types of companies, but it's as broad uh, as you could possibly imagine. As long as the, the, you know, the industry is irrelevant, um, it all comes down to whether or not the individual meets these requirements that were set up by Billy. So mm -hmm. anything else that you want to add, Billy, to this one? Um, I think it's important with these ones, unlike the professionals, there are a cap 
um, to these types of work permits. Uh, so for example, if you're coming in under an executive or senior managerial capacity, you potentially could obtain work permits for seven years. Once you hit that seven year, it's essentially capped. So you would be eligible one once again, but you would have to return to the U.S. and show that you've been, or Mexico, and you've been out, outside of Canada, not working um, within the previous capacity or, or again, just under a work permit in general for at least one year before you'd be eligible to apply under that ICT category again. Uh, with specialized knowledge, same thing, except it's a five-year cap, so it's even shorter. Um, I do think it's important for uh, the U.S. or Mexican companies to make sure there's a way to try and track that entry, especially with project-based because you are parachuting in and out. So you may only come in for a week and then be gone, but you've got a work permit for a year. So it's important that you're not um, showing an officer that you've utilized that whole year, I guess, that you're able to show that you've only been in Canada for a week so that you're not using up a full year of that cap. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, especially when you're dealing with specialized knowledge workers that are coming in you know, relatively frequently, um, being able to recapture that mm -hmm. time on the work permit is is super important because in, in effect you can practically extend that you know for for out for maybe mm -hmm. ten years uh, depending on how frequently they are in Canada but you need to be able to prove it to an officer so that is uh, that's one of the significant advantages of um, of this uh, particular category. All right, so mm -hmm. those are business visitor. NAFTA or USMCA professional and intercompany transfer are our top three sources of, of goodness under this agreement. They really but, are. But there are some lesser known options that you also need to take into consideration. And uh, number four here, I'm going to brush through quite quickly because it is rarely, if ever used, because of how broadly the intercompany transfer uh, provisions have been um, utilized and interpreted. And that is the NAFTA or USMCA trader um, category. So Billy, why don't you give us just a quick overview of the eligibility requirements and then we'll slip into five here in a second. Sure. So for the trader category, uh, in order to qualify, again, your American or Mexican citizenship, employing enterprise has American or Mexican nationality. Activities involve substantial trade in goods or services. Trade is principally between either the U.S. or Mexico and Canada, and position is supervisory or executive or involves essential skills. Okay, so you guys can see from this rundown, it does mirror to some extent the ICT. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because of that, it's, it's really not used very frequently. And before you even transfer the person, you have to be able to demonstrate that there is substantial trade going on between either the U.S. or Mexican company and Canada. And really, uh, supervisory or executive or involving essential skills, it's, it's really, really close to the ICT. And so without having to go through all the hassle of demonstrating the substantial trade and those kinds of things, more than, you know, more frequently than, than any other category, it's going, you're going to instantly shift to the ICT. Now, we have never done a, a USMCA trader work permit before. So I, I pulled a number of my colleagues and, and one of my colleagues who's been on the podcast before, Jeffrey Lowe, he gave me two examples where he used um, the, the category for traders in services. 
And uh, one was a construction firm manager that specialized in short-term sports venues. Example, the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And an event conference planner that did work in LA, Vancouver, and other venues. And so... um, in those circumstances, those were a couple examples of where, where Jeffrey Lowe uh, had used this work permit. But for us, n- never. So that leads us to our last and final uh, good, and really, I guess, in terms of our top five, a trader and investor are really smushed into one here. <laughs> but the investor, uh, the investor category, Billy, tell us a little bit about that one. Okay, so for investors, again, American or Mexican citizenship. Enterprise has American or Mexican nationality. Substantial investment has been made or is actively being made. The applicant is seeking entry solely to develop and direct the enterprise. And the applicant seeking entry is an executive, again, or supervisory position or one involving essential skills. Exactly. So without that element of of trade between the countries, um, the one advantage to this is that if a person wants to come to Canada and be self-employed, they can do that. Whereas the intercompany transfer requires that the person be an employee and that there continue to remain ongoing operations in the US. But with the investor category, provided they are investing a substantial amount of money, uh, and substantial is, is relative to the type of operation. Obviously, if you're setting up a manufacturing facility in Canada, there's gonna be a little bit more investment in that than someone who's providing some you know uh, professional service. And so uh, we'll, you know, w- when we think about examples, the one that comes to mind the most is, um, is, is like a dentist or an orthodontist. And in those circumstances, you can use NAFTA if that dentist wants to work as an associate with a, another dentist in Canada, but often they may consider setting up their own shop and being self-employed. And so as long as they can show that they have, uh, you know, a substan- made a substantial investment, typically if they're American citizen or, or Mexican citizen, they have the, um, the requisite uh, nationality. And, uh, you know, obviously they're the ones who are coming up to direct and control this, this enterprise and to develop it. And so it works. Um, and that's, that's probably one of the more common examples. But like I said, with all of these, you just have to be creative. You have to... Uh, consider it kind of like a buffet and the people that you're trying to bring in may qualify under a number of different categories. And, uh, many cases you have to also contemplate, all right, is there, is this person wanting to become a permanent resident? Uh, You know, if they're taking up a full-time position, what options are available? What will help to facilitate that? And if they're just parachuting in, well, how is there a category like a, a, a professional category where there is no cap and they can just keep coming up or, you know, if they don't have the requisite professional uh, designation, then will an ICT work? And finally, to wrap it all up, do they even need a work permit? You know, are they able to just come in as a business visitor? So this is our, our high level overview of, of why we love NAFTA slash soon to be USMCA. There you go. Yeah, I'm, uh, although I don't know the, the symbols. <laughs> C-M-M. Well, maybe. Yeah, Y-M-C-A. Yeah, totally. You just have to figure out how to do the U. The and U.S. I think the S would the be the US. toughest part. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you do that. I, well, whatever. We'll figure that out. Um, maybe what I'll do is I'll post a picture of Billy doing the S and hmm. put it in the show notes. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I, I'm not sure how that's going to no, work. That, but. <laughs> that, that ain't going to happen. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Billy, for graciously agreeing to join me. And it only required just a minor <laughs> amount of arm twisting. Just a little bit. <laughs> so awesome. All right, guys. Uh, 
take care and thanks so much for joining, Billy. Thank you. Well, it's pretty clear that we could have gone on and on and on if we wanted to about all of the intricacies of each of these various work permit categories and business visitor entries um, that we discussed today in the podcast. And I'm just going to let all of you guys know that although we didn't cover it in this one, stay tuned because we are going to pour out all of our knowledge, experience, everything that we've got. We're going to share it in upcoming podcasts. So you think that in the past, the the episodes have been pretty good. Well, the ones coming up are going to be fantastic. And we are going to take a deep dive into these work permit categories. And those of you practitioners out there that are wondering, oh, I'm a little bit nervous trying this um, this US or this professional category. I wonder how you can use it. You know, I wonder about this part or what, how far can you, can you stretch the provisions and where's good places to apply? Where should I avoid? All of those things. Um, and, and like manner, the intercompany transfer provisions or the, the after sales service, how can I use these? So we're going to take a deep dive into those. And not only that, we're going to, once we get through all of the, the USMCA provisions, and all of the awesome work permit categories that exist there, we are then going to dive into all the rest of the International Mobility Program. And there are some really cool, awesome things. The global skill strategy, there's just a ton of stuff on the business immigration side that I have traditionally not covered in the podcast, at least not with any degree of depth. And uh, now it is time. I'm feeling like we've <clears throat> done a good job at canvassing a lot of the other areas. But now it is time to turn time over to business immigration. And that really is the lifeblood of our practice here at Stringham LLP. And uh, Billy, like I said, she is my right, my right arm. She helps uh, with a significant amount of the, the, um, the business-related immigration that we do within our little office here in Lethbridge, Alberta. But we also have uh, fellow colleagues all across the province of Alberta providing immigration services that are part of our fabulous team. So... With all of this being said, thanks so much for tuning in. It was another awesome podcast. Loved it. It was great to get back behind the mic. And stay tuned. There will be a fast and furious (laughs) release of new episodes here through to the conclusion of 2018. Thanks for sticking with me. And if you have a question um, or a topic, I guess I should say, that you'd like us to cover, by all means, send it my way to mholthy at stringham.ca. That's S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M dot C-A. And uh, we'll definitely consider it. And if you yourself would like to be a guest on the podcast and have some interesting take on some various uh, and um, disperse area of immigration, do not hesitate to reach out to me because I'd love to have you join me. All right, this is Mark Holthy, Canadian Immigration Lawyer signing off and wishing you guys all the best as you navigate your way through this crazy world full of immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your Set you straight with law, policy, and practice.
to be